So Lamentations chapter 2. Um, keep your finger there and go over to Isaiah 28. I wanted to read uh, from Isaiah 28. Um, kind of a parallel passage for what was going to come and what was coming in Israel, um, or had come already at, in the time that we're reading in Lamentations. Um, but for Isaiah, it was future. Um, but he's prophesying of the destruction of Jerusalem and of judgment. Um, and as with all the prophets, what we see here is we see near and far fulfillment, application of the prophecies. And we even see it not just where it's near and far of the actual fulfillment of the prophecy, but almost where the prophet is prophesying in one portion of something coming very soon and quickly, and then in another portion of here's something future, far distant coming here. But this is all wrapped up in the, the Lord's judgment. Look at verse 1. It says, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, uh, whose uh, glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys. So he uses a picture of a flower there that's beginning to wither and wilt. That's at the top um, of a mountain there. To those who are overcome with wine. So we see the state here of um, not being sober. Of being carried about with drunkenness and with um, other things. He says, Behold, the Lord has a strong or has a mighty and strong one. Like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm. Like a flood of mighty waters overflowing who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. So the picture of that flower there standing up, the crown of beauty, and a, a, a torrential hailstorm and, and downpouring coming onto that flower. We know what's going to happen. It's crushed. It's completely obliterated. And that's the picture of Ephraim standing up in pride, but really you're just a fragile, wilting flower about to be destroyed. Um, it says, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, and he eats it up while it's still in his hand. It's there and gone like that. That's the picture. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. So there's destruction, but there's still a remnant. And the strength, the pride, the glory for that group of people will be the Lord. Will be him and resting in him. It says for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment. And for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. But here's the spiritual condition. They also have erred through wine. And through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. They were supposed to be the priests, the representatives of the Lord. Mediators in one sense of the people between the people and God. And rather than... Uh, being responsible for what the Lord had called them to, they were drunk and negligent and, and a place that was supposed to be a place to come and have fellowship and to 
um, bring offerings and, and, and to have feasts of celebration and, and uh, offerings before the Lord rather than that, their table's full of vomit and filth. Is that no place is clean. Look at verse 9, it says, Whom will he teach knowledge? So that was the, the state of the priests, but now here's everyone else as well. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, speaking of babies, those just drawn from the breasts, for precept must be upon precept, uh, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. So this is future prophecy here we see that's fulfilled. But we see the attitude of the people, verse 10, where they say precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And we hear that um, later on as they talk about it again there. But their, their uh, attitude, rather than listening to the Lord and the word of the Lord there, they... Uh, have this sarcastic, mocking attitude. And he says, because of this, you're, you're not going to listen to me. So people who will speak in another tongue rather than what I'm speaking to you are going to speak and you're not going to understand. Verse 12, it says, to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they, may, they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. And you might ask, so what does this have to do with Lamentations? What does this have to do with Jeremiah? This was the attitude of the people. This was the attitude of the priests. This is where they had been the whole time. The Lord was giving them little chances here and there, giving them his word, teaching them like a young child. This is how you learn. You know, a young child, how do you teach them? You teach them the alphabet first, right? As you're teaching them to, to speak, to write, all of these things. Uh, and, and you go little steps here as you're teaching them. And that was what the Lord was doing. But rather than listening to the Lord, rather than hearing his word, Instead, they turned it around and said, we're bored. This is just tedious work. This is, this is not worth it for us. This is not what we want to hear. And in essence, they're turning around and mocking God's word and saying it's precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. You know, we, we in Calvary Chapel have kind of taken this as kind of a badge of honor, I guess, in how we typically go through the scriptures and teach that way. And we're willing to take uh, kind of a, a, a um, derision against that, but it's really teaching the basics of building upon what God's word has said. But there are many people within the church who look at just the teaching of the word of God, studying his word, being in the Bible as a boring little thing of something that's outdated, something that we shouldn't do any longer. It's just this you know, you, you really go through and you read all of these verses and all of these things. I mean, how can you read stuff from the Old Testament? How can you go through all of these things? And there's an attitude uh, in the church of downplaying or belittling God's word. And, and that attitude is an attitude that, that brings judgment upon the church. Because it's an open door then for error. It's an open door for things to come in. Uh, and we see that the long 
long-term effects of that kind of attitude we see with Jerusalem, with God's people, with Israel, this judgment that was coming upon them. Verse 14 says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. And he goes on to talk about that, that their judgment was going to come. They had pride in themselves, and they wouldn't hear, but they were going to be destroyed. Jump down to verse 23. He says, Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods when he has leveled its surface? Does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place, and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. The picture there is the preparation of the planting. The planting was going to be one that where the cumin is beaten out with a stick, where there's judgment, where there's these things. To produce fruit, there had to be discipline because there was a rejection of God's word. And that's what we see the Lord doing with Israel. Go to Lamentations chapter 2. We've been following in Jeremiah and we've been seeing God's judgment on Jerusalem, on Israel. We saw the calls, early calls over and over of repentance to the Lord's people and how they didn't hear. They, they either belittled the word like we read about in Isaiah or they completely ignored it or they just turned their hearts against it. And judgment came. And here we have in Lamentations, Jeremiah viewing the destruction of his beloved people, of Jerusalem, of the people he had ministered to for 40 years. Cast down, judged, utterly destroyed because they would not hear God's word and would not listen. And that's application for us. You guys, the Lord is constantly speaking to us if we are willing to hear he's given us his word he's given us his spirit he gives us what we need as believers to know how to live to walk to know what's right he gives us by his spirit conviction of sin and he calls us daily to hear daily to repent daily to walk with him but when we don't then we have the consequences that come and that's what israel was dealing with Verse 1, it says, How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion like a cloud in his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. Now, I don't know if Dan touched upon this last week, um, but just so you know, Lamentations' first four chapters are all acrostic. Poetry is how they're written. So acrostics, if you guys remember, it's where each uh, verse starts with a specific letter. 
In Hebrew poetry, it's, it's typically the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, and it goes through. Jim was pointing out to me, he said, you know, I was getting the slides ready, and I recognized that chapter 1, chapter 2 are 22 verses. Chapter uh, 4 and 5 are 22 verses. Chapter 3 is 66 verses. So it's easy for me to know what verses to put up on the slides. Um, but the reason for that is because 1, 2, are 22 verses for the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 4 is also um, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 5 is not acrostic. Chapter 3 has three verses for every letter. So that's why there's 66 verses there. Um, and so acrostics, they were used as a means of memorizing. There's a whole list of acrostic passages in the Bible. Um, one of the most notable ones probably is Psalm 119, right? That whole, uh, all the way through, I think it's 150 verses, there are, um, uh, they're all acrostic speaking about the word of the Lord. But it, they wrote these things as a means of remembrance, of memorizing these things. I thought it was so interesting that Lamentations here, was written in a way so that it could be remembered and recited and, and called to memory, set in the hearts of the people. Because Lamentations is a remembrance of what happens when people don't listen to the word of the Lord. It was for Israel to see and to look back and to say, we don't ever want to go back to that place where we're resisting God's word, where we're not hearing. It was a place of remembering the Lord's judgment and that's what it was for Israel, for Judah here. But the other part of chapter 2 that's interesting is it starts with the Lord's anger and it ends with the Lord's anger. If you look at verse 1, it says uh, a cloud in his anger and in the day of his anger. And then verse 22, it talks about the day of the Lord's anger. And it, it has his anger throughout there and it's anger really at Jerusalem at Israel at the people um, because of their sin and, the, and their stubbornness and uh, we see his judgment here but the other part of chapter 2 that should jump out to us as we're reading it here is that Israel Jerusalem is referred to as the Lord's daughter 12 times in this passage 12 times. So in all of his anger, in all of the judgment that's coming, there was never this separation of the Lord saying, you're not my daughter. You're not mine. You are my daughter. And that's why there's judgment here. But there's this, this, this tension between the Lord's love and his mercy and his kindness and his need for uh, justice and judgment upon sin. That had to take place. And that's what we see. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. A dark rain cloud is what that's speaking of. He cast down from heaven to earth the beauty of Israel. And did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. That picture, the dwelling places and the stronghold there, it's the idea of the strength of men. It was something you would look upon and you would, you would be in awe of 
these towers and these this magnificent architecture we know at this point before the judgment of Jerusalem was in the glory days when Solomon and and David had done all their construction works around Israel and, and all of these beautiful buildings that were there and the Lord says it's just a work of man a work of the flesh and I'm tearing it down and that that again is is an application for us that that uh, as we read throughout the scriptures we are not to take glory in the works of our own hands we're not to, to have our lives about what we do ourselves. What is your life focused on? Is it all about your pocketbook and how well you can do there? Is it about your accomplishments at work? Is it about um, all of these other things that you've done? Or is your life marked by the Lord's strength in your life and what he has done for you? If it's not that, those things are going to be cut down. They're going to be taken away. We know that as we stand before the Bema seat of Christ, of that judgment seat before him, we're going to be tested and tried for what we've done in, our, in the flesh according to our faith. We'll have some of our works burned up like hay, wood, and stubble. Some of them, if they've been done in the Spirit according to the Lord, by his will, they'll be like gold, silver, and precious stones and won't be burnt up. But we have to be careful that we are building, we are working by his strength and, and according to his will, not in our own strength and not by our own wisdom and understanding. It's pride that will just be cast down. He's brought them down to the ground. Verse 3, it says, He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel. Horn, again, was a picture of pride, a picture of strength, a picture of, of self-sufficiency. And the Lord says, I've cut it off. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire devouring all around. What we see here is this picture. It's the Lord removing his protection from Israel. Removing that. You see that verse 3. He's drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. Before his right hand was there protecting, securing, keeping them safe. And because they would not listen, they were rebellious against him. He's pulling back and he's letting the enemy come in to judge them. But again, what do we see here? We see it's the Lord the whole time. It's the Lord. He uses the Babylonians. He uses the enemies of Israel to work out his judgment among them in hopes to produce a better harvest and a better fruit in their lives, but really judgment upon their sin. So we see this, the Lord, he's opened up for the enemy to come in. But then we see verse 4, it says, Speaking of the Lord, standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow. So now we see that it's not just this external, fleshly, earthly enemy against them. But in all effects, the Lord has become the enemy of Israel, of Jerusalem. He's not their enemy because of any facetious reason it's not because that's his character he's an enemy of them because they have become his his enemies the word's very clear that those who resist the lord not just those who outwardly resist the lord but those who have not placed their faith in the lord are just born by very nature enemies of god but how much more so those who are then called out of that 
and called to walk with the Lord, to be faithful followers of his who then turn away or rebel against him. They become his enemies again, become like his enemies. James 4.4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's, that's written to Christians. That's written to believers. When we rebel against him, when we choose the world, the flesh, choose other things besides the Lord, we become an enemy of him, working against him. Thankfully, the Lord is kind and gracious and compassionate, and we've seen that with Israel. Remember, we're at the end of this long period of the Lord's long-suffering with Israel. This isn't just, oh, they messed up once and judgment's falling, right? It's, there was a long list of compromise, a long list of sin, and a long and longer list of the Lord saying, repent, come back, don't do that, don't go that way, judgment's coming, repent, and they wouldn't listen. And now the Lord is standing like an enemy. He's bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Verse 5, the Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. Again, this picture, the strength of man rather than strength in God. Their glory was in them in themselves and in their own strength and what they had done. Verse 6, He, the Lord, has done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. Uh, That word tabernacle in the Hebrew is actually booth. And what it speaks of is not the the tabernacle, although he has done that. It's kind of a double picture. Um, The work against his temple and the temple of the Lord, but really it's a picture of this place of dwelling that he had among the people. His booth in a vineyard is the picture there. He has done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He destroyed it. He knocked it down. Um, Turn with me to Psalm 80 real quick. Keep your finger here. Psalm 80, and look at verse 8. This is speaking of Israel. It says, verse 8, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root. And it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow. And the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. That's the picture there of Israel. Planted by the Lord as a a vine, a choice vine that's overtaken the land. It says it's it's completely covered the hills. Excuse me. Filled the land. Um, It's even climbing up the tall cedars with its boughs and going all the way out to the sea. 
this picture of Israel and the abundance as the Lord has planted it. But then we see because of their rebellion against the Lord, verse 12, why have you broken down her hedges, the, the walls that protected the vineyard, so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it, it says. And that was, was going, uh, that is what had happened with Israel, is they were this vine that the Lord had planted. You can go back to Lamentations. This vine that the Lord had planted caused to grow, but no longer producing good fruit producing wild grapes rather than cultivated grapes that the Lord had desired for it, going after false gods, going after other things, not being wholly dedicated to him. And the Lord said, I'm tearing down the walls of my vineyard. It's time for it to be rooted up. And that's what the Lord had done. Verse 6, again, he says he's done violence to his tabernacle, his booth, as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. There's broken relationship there. It's a place of meeting. And that's what happened with Israel. And that's what happens for us, you guys, when we sin, when we rebel against the Lord, when we turn our back on Him, when we don't listen to Him, we break that relationship we have with Him. That place of assembly where we can gather with Him. And uh, we, we uh, as believers, I don't, I don't believe that we can just simply just have something happen to us that causes our salvation to be done away with, right? The word says that no one can snatch us out of the Lord's hand. But at the same time, we know that we can rebel against the Lord. We can turn our backs against him. We can, we can do things that cause our relationship to be broken down. And what's, what's the state of our lives when that happens? It's like Israel, that vineyard where now the walls are down where the wild boar comes in and is starting to root up the vine, where the enemies are coming through and plucking things. Remember what the Lord said to Peter after he uh, uh, said he was going to stand by Jesus when he, he was going to go to his crucifixion. And the Lord said, Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. What's that picture? Someone grabbing a stalk of wheat and shaking it so all the grains fall off. No more fruit. And that's the picture. When we sin, when we give in to temptation, that's that picture. Satan's just got a hold of us now, shaking us. All that fruit that we had producing is falling to the ground. Right? And that's why it's so important that we are humble before the Lord, that we're listening to him, that we don't have a heart of hardness when he's convicting us by his spirit, that we're listening to his word, that we're paying attention to him, that we're seeking to use the word like a mirror that we look at and say, where's the blemish on my face? Do I have another pimple growing there? Or is one of my nose hairs starting to stick out? Do I need to pluck it? That's what the word's for. If we don't go to the word, we have no idea what we look like. And we got rotting teeth and dirt all over our face and all of these things that aren't being dealt with that turn into serious problems. But instead, we're to be coming to the word and we're to be taking refuge in that precept upon precept, line upon line. Those little things where the Lord's saying, okay, deal with this now. Here's this, okay, you've dealt with that good. Here's this other thing you need to deal with now. And that's the Lord's relationship with us. It's that slow little working in our hearts as we listen to that still small voice and we obey the, the spirit 
as he's speaking to our conscience and in our hearts as we obey him, then uh, we have those little victories in our life. And the Lord then reveals, oh, here's this other area you need to deal with now. And that's what the Lord does. It's his kindness and his compassion and his sanctification that he does. But that only happens if we're in the word. That only happens if we're in his word, if we're coming to it. If not, we've got open doors for destruction, for fruit dropping, for the the boar coming in and, and tearing up and ripping down. Our only protection is to be in God's word, in his will, being obedient to it like James says. Not just being a hearer, but being a doer. They heard, Israel heard all the time. They heard over and over and over and over again, but they didn't do it. We saw that some of the last times we looked at um, Jeremiah with some of the people there where they said, oh, let's hear what God has to say to us about this. Should we go to Egypt? Right? And Jeremiah says, I'm going to tell you. And he tells them. And they say, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to listen. They heard all the time, but they didn't do. And that, again, is a reminder for us. We need to not just hear, but do the application Walk with the Lord. The word says to taste the Lord and see that he's good. And that tasting, it, it's, a, it's a step of faith. It's saying the Lord's called me to do this. The Lord's called me to give up these things. The Lord's called me to uh, be faithful in, in my job, in my marriage, and all of these other things. And it's these little steps to be humble. We talked about this in our men's meeting, about being humble before our children. Admitting when we're wrong, being willing to to not be a prideful father or a prideful husband, a prideful man, and to say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. I think Dan even talked about it last week here on Wednesday night about having to (laughs) apologize. (laughs) I'm sorry. But, but, uh, you know, but, but we have to have that willingness to be humble. And it's in those little things where we're testing the Lord to see, is it better for me to lose face and be obedient to the Lord than it is for me to say, no, I was right, but now my heart's just a little bit harder against the Lord. And my relationship with him is getting distant. And my relationship with those people around me who maybe I've been prideful to or in front of, that's getting distance as well. But it's in the, those little steps of obedience to him that we bear fruit and we have that protection that we need as Christians in walking in his will. And it's not this massive big thing, the Lord's called me to do this great thing in my life. Maybe he has a great thing for you, but he's not going to call you to that great thing if you're not being responsible in these little things. That's what he's called us to, is responsibility with all the things that he's given to us. It, it, it's to do whatever we do is unto the Lord. To bring him glory. Look at verse 7. It says, The Lord has spurned his altar. He's abhorred it, it means. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. It literally means he shut them into someone else's hand. It's like taking somebody who won't take something, you know, and you put it in their hand and you curl their fingers over it. Say, no, take it. That's what the picture is the Lord has done with Israel. It says, you take them. They're going off to judgment, captivity. That's what he's done. 
They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. The contrast there. A feast was a time of rejoicing. They would have singing and, and, and joyfulness and laughter and all of these things. But rather than that, there's a noise of destruction and judgment and wailing. Verse 8. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. This word purposed, it's in contrast to Jeremiah 29, 11. You know that verse, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Many Christians have that as their life verse, and it's a great verse. And I think if we're walking with the Lord, that is what he has for us. But at the same time, this was a verse for Israel in context that he had given to them. But also in context, what's the other verse for Israel that the Lord had given is this verse 8, where he purposed, his plan was to destroy them. In this, to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. His purpose there was judgment because they would not listen. There's a plan for good and they had the plan for good. But there was also the plan for judgment because of their rebellion. And that's the same thing for us. That's what the word talks about, that there is judgment. There's, there's uh, discipline that the Lord gives us as Christians. Sometimes his purpose is discipline in our lives. Where there's a, a lesson that needs to be learned because we're resistant against him. The Lord does not seek to destroy us, but if he loves us and because of his love, he seeks to chastise us, to teach us. To teach us to not go that way any longer, but to follow him instead. And that's what we see the picture here. He's stretched out a line. It's that plumb line, a carpenter's line that's used to measure whether a wall is straight. He holds a line up, says, you're not measuring up. Is what he's done there. We see that throughout the scriptures. The Lord uses that picture. He uses it in Amos as well. The measuring line. It says here's the line. They're not standing up to it. And the plan is. Anything that does not stand up. Gets knocked down and torn down. And that's what's going to take place. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he caused the rampart. And wall to lament. They languish together. Now, I don't know if I'm stretching here on this, but we're going to start to see even more and more this mention of the walls here. And as I was reading this, I was reminded of uh, Jeremiah's calling um, <clears throat> early on uh, in, uh, I don't think I wrote down the verse, but it's in chapter 2 of Jeremiah. Um, let me turn there real quick. Chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. In Lamentations, we see this picture of the wall that's that's weeping that's mourning the judgment that's taking place a wall um, that was set up 
and seeing the judgment that's taking place around there. Jeremiah, I'm sure he had that picture in his mind. The Lord said, you're this brass bronze wall of judgment. The Lord is judging Israel. You're going to stand there. They're going to fight against you, but you're not going to stand. You're not going to fall down. But we see this lamenting the wall. Jeremiah there lamenting over his people and seeing them. Verse 9, her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The Lord wasn't saying that the, the word of God, the law, did, ceased to exist. Obviously, we have it, right? That's not what he's saying, but he's saying that there's no one, there's no more listening, there's no more obedience, there's no more of this being before them. The, the word of God is now silent before them. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. He wasn't giving them any prophecy. Judgment had come. They didn't heed, and judgment had come. Verse 10, then we see the reaction here. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. It's this picture of just being dumbstruck before what's happened. To, to look at the destruction and the things going on. Rather than standing up and doing something about it, they're just dumbstruck in awe, sitting on the ground, silent, throwing dust on their heads. And it's that picture of their lowliness is what, what's taking place when they're doing that. It's that mourning. They gird themselves with sackcloth. And the virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. There's no joyfulness. There's only lamenting. And here we see Jeremiah now shift. Rather than looking at the picture, he's saying, this is my heart now. My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled my bile is poured out on the ground. He's, he's seen the destruction and the, the end result of the rebellion of his people. And it's made him so sick he's throwing up because of what's taking place. His heart is troubled. His eyes are completely exhausted with tears, it says. His eyes fail with tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. Uh, I can't imagine seeing that. Children wandering around and fainting because there's no food. Remember, that's the picture of what's happening in Israel. Even before the siege had ended and the Chaldeans broke in, um, they were had a famine in the land, again, because of judgment of the Lord that would take in place. And so they were hungry. And the children were there just standing and falling over in the streets. They turn to their mothers, verse 12, they say to their mothers, where is grain and wine as they swoon like the wounded in the streets? They're falling over like someone stabbed them as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. How shall I console you to what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? The destruction. You guys, the, this is the destruction of sin. We see it in the world around us. Our nation, uh, uh, judgment is coming. Dan, I, I sent Dan a, a article this morning. Um, it was uh, from Children's Health Defense. Uh, and they were talking about how New York City is, is setting up to um, restrict people from being able to buy meat for their food. 
um, as well as working on carbon credits and all of these other things for them, restricting um, their driving time, their vehicles, all of these things. And uh, what they've uncovered, this article, is that the people behind it, obviously it's the U.S. government, federal government, working with the mayor of New York City and the New York government, and then, but also there's this other group that's connected to the World Economic Forum. Um, and this other group, if you guys have heard about it, if you've been paying attention, they've been talking about these 15-minute cities, right? 15-minute city, meaning you have no car, uh, you're restricted within this tiny, you know, secluded area uh, where you can walk anywhere that you need to go within that city within 15 minutes. But it's basically a, a complete locked down, controlled society where there's no freedom, no liberty, no nothing. And that's the group that's behind this. And they are actually implementing these things in New York City right now as we speak. Um, and uh, I, after I sent, him, sent that to him, uh, you know, Dan responded and said, it's crazy what's happening right now. And I said uh, that, you know, judgment is coming. Uh, it's because of worshiping the creature rather than the creator, like Romans talks about. Um, for the true believers in these things, it's, it's propped up as saying this is for environmentalism. This is to protect the, the earth. Let's save the earth. Let's save the animals. Let's do all of these things. Stop climate change. All of this stuff going on. We need to have that kind of control so that people are not abusing the planet. Um, and for the true believers, they just eat it up and because they've rejected the idea of God as creator and as have given giving the earth to us for us as mankind to have dominion over it, to be good stewards of it, but to have dominion over it where man is more important and man's life is more important than nature, than the animals, than the earth. That's what we see. The Lord even shows that, that these these uh, commandments that he had, like the commandments of not entering the tabernacle and eating the showbread off the table, that the Lord said, well, David's life, if you remember the story, David went in as he's being chased, and, and his men are hungry and fainting, and he goes in and he takes bread from the altar that was dedicated to the Lord and to the priests there, and he takes it and eats it, and he wasn't judged for that. And the Lord uses that as an example to show that he values man's life over the Sabbath, over those things. And we see that again with what takes place in, in um, the New Testament with Jesus and all of these things going on. But that's what the Lord uh, has for us as people. And what he's called us to is that understanding of the order of creation that he's established according to the word of God. But the world is taking that and turning that around. And, and is implementing all these things. There's more than just that. That's, that's one thing. There's the economy stuff going on right now. But even more and even worse than that is this um, insidious movement against our children that's been taking place in our society. We have abortion that, that uh, has been legal for a long time uh, where children are, are destroyed in their mother's womb. Uh, and there's no restriction against it, except in certain states um, right now. But uh, 
But even beyond that, we have this attack by Satan against all things that the Lord has established in his word, against the family, divorce, divorce in the church that we see has entered in, how, how rampant it is. We see um, unfaithfulness to one another. We see pornography. Men are completely ensnared in pornography. Um, and it's an open door and a gateway to all sorts of sin and all sorts of other things. We see uh, our children uh, being brainwashed in the school systems. That there is no God. Being taught that evolution is the only truth. Or is a truth rather than a, a, a theory. Being uh, taught that uh, you can choose your gender. That all of these other things, being sexualized at a very early age. We have all of these things that are just this massive movement against God's people. It's always been there. The Lord said that we're in the world, but not of the world. That the world hates us because we're in him. Because it's always hated him. And we've seen that, that it's always been there. Satan has always been working, but we're seeing that increase in our culture and our society. And sadly, all of these things that we see and we might look at and rail against in our society are in the church as well. It's not just on the outside. There are things in the church. And there's a sorry state. We look at, we, we hear, I mean, it's, it's pretty much every week, if not more than that, where we hear of some pastor, sexual sin. You know, cheat on his wife, have an affair, uh, caught up with uh, sex with uh, somebody who works at his church, or, uh, you know, caught in adultery or uh, pornography, caught up with uh, drug abuse or drunkenness or, or these other things. Uh, we have men who, who uh, have no backbone, unwilling to stand upon the truth of the word of God. We have a hard-hardened, hard-heartedness towards one another that we see. All of these things are symptoms and signs of the end days that the Lord talks about, where the love of many will grow cold. And you guys, as we see all of these things, we need to check our hearts. What's our reaction to it? What is our response? Our response is not to rail against everything that's happening in the world and how wrong it is and all of these things. We, there should be a, a, some anger and being upset and all of these other things. But what's the response? The response should be like Jeremiah that we see here. That we see here. Our eyes failing with tears, our heart being troubled. Because destruction is coming. That's what we have promised, book of Revelation. We, the, the prophetic books in the scriptures teach uh, about judgment coming on the world and coming soon. And we just see the times ramping up. And our hearts should be broken over these things. And then there's a response. I'm running out of time here. So, uh, but uh, we see uh, verse 17, jump down there. It says, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in days of old. This is going back to Deuteronomy is really, I believe, what Jeremiah is referencing, where Moses wrote down that if they rebelled against the Lord, that judgment was going to come. 
says he's fulfilled his word, which he commanded in days of old. He is thrown down and not pitied. He has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the horn of your adversaries. It says their heart cried out to the Lord. And here's the response that we are to have, that we are to call people to have, that we should be doing right now. Their heart cried out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. Do we care enough to pray? That's the big question. Do we care enough to weep and pray over the things that are happening in our culture and society? It does not mean that we should always be going about and just this weeping attitude all the time. Right? There's a time for joy. There's a time for praise. There's a time for rejoicing. All of these things. But at the same time, when we're confronted, when we're faced with these things, our reaction should be to cry out, Oh, Lord, save them. Protect them. Lord, to cry out, to pray. Do you pray for your children? Are your children going astray? Are they toying with things they shouldn't be toying with? Your wife, your husband, your family members, do you cry for them? Do you cry out to the Lord for them? Do you pray? I, I wish we would see more people come to our prayer meetings. It's not just in there that your prayers are heard or that we have effectiveness there. But I think it's, it's, a, it's a condition of the church that we see evident that we don't see very many people coming out to prayer and spending time being diligent and interceding for people and praying. You know, I, I, I know uh, many parents that I've heard, thankfully, we haven't dealt with a child going astray, but we know family and, and other people who, who have dealt with that. And you see a godly parent, their heart breaks, and a prayer for their child is almost always on their lips crying out to the Lord, because truly he's the only one. Remember what Jeremiah said in verse 13, your ruin is spread as wide as the sea, who can heal you? The answer is the Lord. The Lord is the one who can heal. He's the only answer for us. He is our answer when we see these things. And our response, the emphasis of Lamentations chapter 2, one verse for all the uh, letters uh, in uh, the alphabet, except for here, where there's two, chapter 19, where, or, or sorry, the uh, not one, one verse per letter, but there's three lines per letter in each of these verses, whereas in verse 19, there's six lines. There's an emphasis, a double emphasis on this, um, and, and that's the emphasis that Jeremiah has is this just being broken before the Lord. For them, they were broken over their sin. They were broken over the effects of their sin. Seeing this, and that was the steps towards repentance, recognizing the state that they were in. You guys, we have to be careful that our sorrow over our sin or our sorrow over the state of things around us does not just end in that place. 
It's where the words say, godly sorrow produces repentance. You're going to have sorrow over your sin because you're sorry that you got caught. You're going to have sorrow over your sin because you're sorry for all the consequences that are taking place. That sorrow means nothing unless there's a turning to the Lord. And that's why that emphasis is here, where they're to cry out. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands towards him. To cry out in the night. And we see this call for them to not give relief, to give their eyes no rest. And we're called to do that when we see these things taking place around us. Verse 20 says, See, O Lord, and consider, to whom have you done this? Should the women eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? The hunger was so strong, so much, that this is uh, the state that they were in cannibalism should the priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the lord the lord's not pleased in these things taking place young and old lie on the ground in the streets my virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword you have slain them in the day of your anger you have slaughtered and not pitied you have invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me in the day of the lord's anger there was no refugee one who escaped or survivor one who remained those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. Here's this destruction. And you guys, again, we see prophesied that these things are going to take place in the world around us. Terrible judgment that's coming on the earth for sin because of rejecting the Lord. But we also see in that judgment, just like what took place here with the people of Israel, that this judgment that's coming is also meant to turn Israel's hearts back to the Lord again. And that we see that ultimate fruit of Israel recognizing Jesus finally as their Messiah, the one whom they rejected. We see that there. Um, It's heavy, difficult things that we see take place. But we should have this understanding when there's sin, when there's rebellion, when there's resistance against the Lord. It's not these little things. It may be a little thing here and now. I I think if you look back and you see Israel and you see Jerusalem and you see the history there, you see they, they had small little consequences going on throughout their time that they were there, where they were toying with sin, where they were going after other gods, where they were not listening to the Lord. The Bible talks about storing up wrath. And that's what Israel was doing. And that's what people do as they hear the conviction of the Lord but don't respond. There's a storing up of wrath. And one day judgment comes. We have judgment in the end times. We may have consequences over things in our own lives that come. Galatians, you guys know the verse. 6-7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he also will reap. Remember what it says about Israel. They had sown the, the wind and they were reaping the whirlwind. You guys, we need to be so careful that we are not sowing the wind, but sowing good seeds of righteousness, of following the Lord, of walking with him. The world is dark. Things around us are heavy and difficult, but we are called to be salt and light. And thankfully, we have the Lord We have his spirit. We have his word to be the anchor of our soul, to be 
the, our mainstay so that we're not blown about by winds of doctrine. Doctrine, We're not uh, uh, torn up and, and rooted up when difficulty comes our way. We have the teachings of Peter and, and, and the others, in, and, uh, Paul and the others in the New Testament, and Jesus himself that talk about what we do when there's suffering, when there's tribulation, when there's trial. We don't know what things are coming our way. We don't know when the Lord is returning for his church. We pray that it's soon. The signs point to that it's soon, but we don't know exactly when, and we don't know what's going to happen before them. But we as people need to be rock solid, rooted in his word. And when we have that, we have the protection around us. Not being uh, uh, exempt from suffering and trial, but we have his protection through suffering, through trial, through tribulation. We have a place to return to, a place to stand in. We have uh, that solid root of the righteous that goes down deep into the ground where winds come rather than being like that flower we read about in Isaiah standing on the mountain that just gets destroyed by the storm. We can withstand because we're rooted in God's word. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that, uh, Lord, you would give us a heart of compassion for the people around us. Lord, that we would have this understanding of the destructiveness of sin. Sin is enticing. It's good for a time. It's deceptive. It's seductive. That's what we see in the Garden of Eden, Lord, with Satan and his temptation of Eve. But what was the end result there? It was Eve and Adam suffering spiritual death cast out of the garden, sin and death entering the world, Lord. And we see the after effects of that, and we see it in our own lives, Lord, the effects of sin. I pray that, Lord, we would have compassion for people, but a a humility in our own hearts, Lord, that we would not be prideful. We would not uh, make light of your word. We would take it seriously. We would rely upon it as our daily bread, as our very life. We would be relying on your spirit as that living water like we recently looked at in uh, John, Lord. That water that we're no longer thirsty any longer as we partake of it. Lord, that we would be people who feast upon you and what you've given us to nourish us, to give us strength. And that in in being your people and partaking of you, that your heart, your desire, your will, seeing things and people with your eyes, we would see sin as sin, wicked and evil and against you. And that when we walk in it, we're your enemy. We would see from your perspective. And we would see compassion, the love and gentleness and kindness and call to repentance that you have for people. That we would be a people who pray. We wouldn't throw our hands up in fear and stick our heads in the ground, but as we see things that are scary, that cause us to tremble, that, that uh, cause us to cry and break down, that we would pour out those tears in prayer to you, Lord. And we would rely on you for strength. We ask this in your name. Amen.